Hello and welcome to the Queer Romance Readers Discord server and our spotlight talk for Marked by Fire by Mia West. Today we're so excited to have the author here with us. Hi Mia. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming and I'll introduce myself quickly. I'm Rachel. I'm a server moderator here at Queer Romance Readers and with me and is... I'm Ella. Also. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm Ella, also the moderator. Doing well. So to get us started, Mia, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing? Sure. Um, I'm not one of those folks who wrote their whole life. Um, actually started as a grant writer, and I didn't really write fiction until my mid-30s and I started writing fan fiction. <laughs> um, so I was in the fandom for The Office, um, the US version of The Office. And um, I did that for a couple of years and then I kind of transitioned into middle grade and YA for a while. And um, worked on some projects there and then I started wanting to write more adult stuff and um, self-publishing was coming up and was becoming more uh, accessible. And it was much tougher to sell to younger audiences through self-publishing because you really have to sell to you know, parents and librarians. Um, and I was more interested in ad adult stories at that point. So um, in the, oh, I think it was the summer of 2014, RWA had its first self-publishing track at the conference. And I didn't go to the conference, but I listened to those sessions. I bought the sessions in recording and I listened to them just over and over again. And I started planning what I wanted to do. And, um, and maybe that was 2013 actually. And so then that fall, I started my first series and I started publishing it on New Year's Eve. And um, it was a time travel, it was time travel erotica. <laughs> but it featured a character that um, later became part of um, the prequel series to End of the Fire, or prequel to series to Marked by Fire. So, you know, twists and turns, um, but all of my series are in a linked universe. And so there's, the connections are all over the place. <laughs> so that's how I got started. I have to make a quick confession, though, which is that so Ella and I were talking about your work. And at the time, I feel like I was reading. See, I'm going to get them split again. But I was reading Into the Fire, like the, uh -huh. the box set. And she said, we'll and we're going to feature Marked by Fire. But in my mind, I was like, yeah, the book I'm reading. <laughs> <laughs> we were like coming up on this when I realized, oh, that's the other one that I have been meaning to read and hadn't gotten to yet. So I, I've read, I've read them both. <laughs> so yeah, the way that they connect is, I think, enhances them. But uh, I think, like Ella would say, that having read the um, Into the Fire first was fine as well, and I could see that too. You could enjoy them in any order, but the interconnection is, it does. Um, I love that. Uh, when you know you can continue to even just mention of characters that I know before always gets me. I just love it, even if it's just a quick line. So, okay. Say, I'm so curious now. Uh, so you're a fanfic for The Office, so you obviously don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But who did you ship in that fandom? Oh, okay. So most of what I wrote was Jim and Pam. Um, they the show ended season two on a major cliffhanger. And, uh, you know, I was like, ooh, I bet there's fans. And I read a couple and I thought, I'll do this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> overconfidence. Um, so I started writing it. But one of my favorite pieces I wrote was actually Jim and Roy um, having a history before Pam even showed up. And uh, the show... After I wrote that, the show, the show brought their own canon on and that said Jim had shown up after Pam. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> there goes my canon. But um, yeah, so I secretly kind of shipped 
Jim and Roy and uh, I had a fic about Jim and Josh when he, you know, Jim moved to whatever other city he went to. I can't remember. Um, but uh, I think that it's so awesome how often we talk to authors with a fandom influence. We love fan fiction here. This is actually most of the server moderators get first connected through fanfic. So we, um, but it's our, our, um, our ships are dark and shameful and we don't discuss them, but (laughs) nothing, nothing is shameful. There are no guilty pleasures. (laughs) I know. I agree with that. Divisive, I should say. Um, it's like a free, it seems like it offers like a freedom in your, uh, the beginning of a writer's journey, if you will. Like there's just, maybe fewer senses of limitation on what is allowed or what you can and can't do. I just feel like fan fiction is, um, is a great place to start. And I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah. It's what it does when you're just starting out is it gives you fully formed characters and a setting if you want to use that setting. Um, and I did for the most part, I did write, one alternate universe that put Jim, Pam, and Roy in the Great Depression, um, which is fun. And, um, but it allows, you know, we go in with characters that you know by heart, um, you know, and you know how they normally interact and you know the setting. You can just, you know, think about different premises and work on those and you can, it's great, great, great for dialogue. Uh, because you've been listening to them for a while, and so it's great practice for mimicking that dialogue. Um, and then I, you know, I just kind of transitioned from that to my own stuff. Once I had confidence that I could come up with a character, um, you know, out of whole cloth, um, I did that. But uh, it's, I think it's a great place to start you know, as long as it stays in fandom <laughs> okay. and, and doesn't travel anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely um, something you could talk about for hours, I feel, like the, the merits or lack thereof of <laughs> adapting fanfic further for publication. We've talked a lot about that on here. Um, oh, I so, bet. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what would you describe as your writing process if you have sort of a set one? Does it vary between projects or what could you tell us about that? So um, I do have a process. It has evolved. It keeps evolving because I love systems, but my brain also loves to find the loophole in my systems. (laughs) And, um, you know, it gets naughty and tries to subvert, subvert everything. But um, my current system is that I work on projects in seasons. And I have three creative seasons during the year. Uh, It's basically late winter and spring, summer and fall. And in each of those seasons, I have three projects that are in various stages. I'll have one that I am just... um, Kind of thinking about and planning and designing and doing character arc work. Um, I'll have another that I've already done that work on, so I'm drafting. I'm creating, you know, a good first draft, like a solid first draft. And then the third project, we one that I've already drafted, and I'm editing it. I'm revising and editing, getting it ready to send to a line editor, and. When I get it back from the line editor, I do the polishing work and publish it. Um, So that gives me three releases a year. And if something goes awry, um, I, you know, like if something went awry in the next year, I could always box up the first three Arthur books and put them out, you know, as a box set. Um, We have flexibility for things like that. But, um, I find that works for me. I like having more than one project going. Uh, if I get stuck on one, I can go you know, to the other one. Uh, my very, very, very favorite part <laughs> is the planning. 
Um, I can just get lost in my spreadsheets. I have, you know, all kinds of spreadsheets that I use, plot grids. Um, I love to have a pretty solid plan going in. Um, but, you know, I've had uh, characters change the direction of a book before, and that's fine as long as it seems in character and it takes their story to a place that seems right for them. You know, I'll go with it. I revise my plan. I'll stop for a couple days and, you know, shuffling things around and then keep going forward. So, you know, it's, it gives me a roadmap, which is a comfort thing for me. Um, and then, you know, when I'm in the drafting, I just try to listen to them. That is really fascinating. The idea yeah. of having like three things going at once, but at different stages, I guess, gives like enough separation that you don't feel like the lines become blurred, but because you're not like drafting two, two at the same time, right? It would be earlier work, like pre-writing work when you talk about the planning and the character work. Right. And usually, okay, so like right now, um, I am uh, finishing, the one that's in revision and editing is the second book in a series called Shift and Seek, which is a treasure hunting series. Um, the book that I'm drafting is the seventh Sons of Britain book, which is Uther's book. Uh, so two different series, so that helps. And the one that I'm planning is the third book in the Treasure Hunter series. So even if, you know, the planning book and the finishing book were in the same series, I would know enough about the book that's being finished you know, that I could do the book that's being planned. Um, so that's, that's how I like to stack them. And sometimes I have to put something on the back burner for a little while and focus on one of them over the other ones. But I like to try to keep three going. So within your series, then, do you have, like, a plan for the whole series? Like, you were talking about working on those you'd have in your stack to maybe two installments. Um, but do you know, like, what's going to come have you done the pre-planning to know like what's going to come next? I'm always curious about that. Or does the series sort of unfold in a way that it is organic? Well, I mean, it's organic either way, but you know, what I, I guess you know what I mean. Like you, you know where, where it's headed when you're writing the books before. Yeah. When I, um, when I first conceive of a series, uh, I think all of mine, maybe, well, most of them have had a series arc. And so I know before I start the work on the first book what a series arc is. I work that out. Um, so I have in my planning spreadsheet uh, for the Arthur books, um, I have a tab that is the whole series. And so I've planned out by book what happens for each character in each book, roughly. Um, but that's... It's a nine book series. I don't know if folks know that, <laughs> but Sons of Britain is going to be nine books. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I touched on the major points in the legend, that I bring it to a conclusion that feels good, um, but also that the series has a good shape. Um, when I do a long series like that, I think the series should have a similar arc shape that a single book has. Um, and so different books in the series serve different purposes along that arc. So yeah, I do roughly plan a whole series, um, but I don't have it scene by scene, just, you know, roughly uh, what happens in the external story and for the major characters in each book. I gotta say, I'm very excited for Uther to get his own book because he's. We will talk about him later. <laughs> he's, such a, he's an interesting character. I love Uther. He's. <laughs> I love taking a character who is just a complete asshole and um, <laughs> redeeming them, like making readers love them against their will. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of my favorite things to do, oh. and so that's. That's his deal. He's um, he's an arrogant piece of work, and but he'll get his story too. I know Ella and I both approve of a villain 
hero becoming <laughs> redeemed, or they don't even really have to be that redeemed. <laughs> We're still into it. So, yeah, that's really exciting. I just put a lot of exclamation points into the text. Um, nice. <laughs> so we like to start our discussion of this book, uh, the Spotlight book, by asking. So for people who haven't read Marked by Fire yet, uh, what should they know about the book and why should they give it a try? So Marked by Fire starts a series that retells Arthurian legend uh, with a clear queer slant. And um, I read all the Arthur stuff I could find in my 20s, like, and this was the mid 90s. Um, so I was limited by my local library. And uh, I, man, I just glommed everything I could find. And, uh, and then it blipped away in, the, in my brain for 20 years. And, and then I finally realized I had a great chance to write my own. Um, in the middle of the end of the fire series, I was like, oh, holy shit, these guys could be Arthur's grandfathers. <laughs> and, um, and that's when I started planning it. Um, so in the legend, we have, you know, everybody can picture the boy Arthur pulling the sword out of the stone, but then everything kind of skips forward to when Arthur's in his thirties and forties and Camelot, you know, is a thing it's established and Lancelot's there and there's the whole, you know, affair and betrayal. And then Arthur gets killed by Mordred, but there's like, there's nothing in the middle, <laughs> like nothing. Um, and I thought there's a real chance to show Arthur a young man and how he comes into his own and becomes this person that people, uh, you know, want to be around and fight for. And so I decided to start it when he is 18. Although I'll admit, when I first planned the series, he was more like 16 or 17, and I aged him up um, just so I didn't get any flack <laughs> for having a 16-year-old, you know, uh, in a relationship with a 20-year-old. Um, so I wanted to show um, one possibility for Arthur's life from the time he's 18 to the time he's about 35 or 40. So that's where it starts. Arthur 18, he has been held back from fighting for his people who live in what is now Wales. And the reasons he was held back, he doesn't actually know, but he is uh, just dying to fight. You know, he's dying to be a warrior. Um, at the same time, he has a huge crush on his older brother, Shieldmate, who happens to be the warlord's son. And uh, when he finally gets his chance to fight. Uh, he, you know, it's like he's shooting out of a cannon. He just goes nuts. Um, so he's young and he's brash and he makes some major mistakes. And one of them nearly costs Bedwer his future. And so that's how, that's what I, where I wanted to start those guys. Um, in, in legend, Bedwer is often... Uh, portrayed as having one hand or one arm. And I thought, well, okay, so Arthur's going to cause that. <laughs> um, so that's where these guys have to start. And uh, it's, I saw a chance to explore the relationships that spring up among men who fight side by side and who depend on each other for their lives. And that, that just seemed to mesh so well um, with the idea of Arthur, you know, and his inner circle of what later were called knights, but I call warriors. And um, it's like, okay, we're going to, you know, see how we can tell this story if we have actually you know, fighting pairs who are also, uh, you know, love matches, romantic couples. So Marked by Fire is the first book in this series. 
and um, it much of it takes place in a very insulated space. Um, only one bed is a major <laughs> trope in this book, um, and forced proximity. Uh, so if you like <laughs> either of those tropes, um, and a gregarious hero matched with a shy, kind of grumpy hero, um, along with some hurt comfort, some major hurt comfort, um, this could be a book for you. Also, just the first line of this book. <laughs> <laughs> if you were um you know if you're one of those people who has that as part of their decision making process sold right there you know? excellent excellent yeah. yeah very well done um i also think it was fun how some of the tropes are just like called out like i i feel like there's a moment where so arthur's like shown up at the hut and won't leave and and one of the things is, well, there's only one bed. And he's like, well, I'll sleep on the floor. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. That won't last. <laughs> I just loved it. Yeah. A little meta moment. So, yeah, as you were saying, Marked by Fire is a retelling of our theory and legend. But you set it kind of in a very specific time period and like the dark ages in Wales. Um, so I kind of wondered... Why did you choose that time period? Because it's it's a very interesting one, one that I've never read a book in that time period, kind of um, after the fall of Rome. So yeah, why did you decide to set it during then? So a few reasons. One was that I was in the middle of writing Into the Fire when I realized I could be setting up um, my own version of Arthur. And since that took place, right after the fall of Rome, that kind of set the timeline. But there are a few things that I love about that time period. Um, one, to be honest, is there's not a lot of written history. So I was able to kind of just extrapolate what I knew from my, you know, classes on Roman history from college, and just a few of the written sources from maybe the 6th or 7th century. And really imagine whatever world I wanted, frankly. You know, like if I was writing Regency, oh my goodness, so many rules. <laughs> There's so much to adhere to, whereas I can, I can get away with a little less strict historical accuracy, I guess you could say, even though what I'm writing isn't strictly historical fiction or historical romance, there are definitely fantasy elements. That's another thing I should say about this book is most of my other series are shifter series and that also touches on this series later, not in the first book, but later. Um, and so it definitely has some fantasy, but that early medieval period lets me kind of stretch and do my own imagining. The other thing it let me do was to center bedwork. Bedwer and Kay are two of the first Arthurian characters ever mentioned in uh, literature. And uh, Bedwer was Arthur's right-hand man. Uh, he was loyal and trustworthy and apparently very handsome and, you know, one-handed. Um, and since he was already, you know, hundreds of years ago, a thousand years ago, presented as Kay's best friend, uh, I was able to keep that. And it's just, we got a lot of great things in the legend later, you know, in the, like, 600 years later, folks were writing for um, European noblemen and kings and writing flattering, you know, chivalric stories about Arthurian legend, and they introduced a lot of what we know now about the legend, including that's when uh, Lancelot was introduced, that's when Guinevere was introduced, that's when their affair was introduced. And you got um, the Holy Grail and the Round Table and, you know, tournaments and damsels in distress. Um, but the earlier stories, there was a chance to be a little grittier there and to make things a little less 
uh, polished and a little more uncertain. Um, so I really embrace that. One of the series that I read in my 20s that I loved uh, was the Skystone series uh, by Jack White. The first book is called The Skystone. Um, and he took a late Roman approach to his series. And I really appreciated that because his comes off as historical fiction. And it was so different from, you know, All Knights and Ladies and all the other ones, most of the other ones, that it, it I don't know, it just really drew me. I liked that it felt more realistic. I love just having a time period that you can use as your own, like, play area almost. Because I do find, you know, in some historical books, I've kind of, I read so many, like, Regency ones that if I just read, like, a little yep. line, I know, like, if they've used a phrase from the 1920s and it's set in the 18th century, I'm just like, no, I can't finish the rest of this book. So it's quite nice to, you know, read a book in a time period that I'm just very ignorant of and I can just be like, I'll take anything and enjoy it thoroughly. <laughs> Oh no, Ella, you're the reason why historical romance authors have like trouble sleeping at night because you would notice <laughs> that I never would. I just assume everybody, like it's all, every, everything that we would do or say now, except like just made a little fancier. That's how I, that's how I read read. In all this was a book that was like, yeah, meant to be set like 18th century and they used the phrase like going to the pit stop. I was like, wait, you're on a ship. How does this work? There's so much wrong with that. Yeah, that's true. That, that's like a NASCAR thing, isn't it? it is. Yeah, I get with it. I was like, is this like an older yeah. phrase that I'm just like completely blanking? I was like, no, yeah, 1920s. That's when it came about. I wasn't impressed. Well, with that being said, I feel like uh, the 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 voice that you write with in this universe between the two series is is so great. Ella and I were talking about this before we. Um, began this interview which is that it feels very I, th I felt like it felt historical like it didn't feel modern but yet it felt so clear and um straightforward just like an easy read in the best way you know what I mean um oh good which I really appreciate because sometimes I find in historical books that the language either feels cumbersome like it's kind of tripping me up a little bit or it feels very modern, you know, just the voice feels very modern. I felt, I feel like you, these books, if for people who, who love, who like fantasy, but maybe don't, aren't drawn to historicals, it has mm -hmm. a very fresh voice, I feel, but without making it, without taking you out of the sense that you're in this sort of ancient time. I don't know if ancient's the right word. See, I don't know how to talk about history. Like you're in a <laughs> yeah. medieval time, or is it medieval? I don't know. Anyway, though, that, that time, that okay, time long ago, should after the fall of Rome. <laughs> Well, that's good. That's good. I've, I've worried sometimes that they'll turn some people off just because, um, you know, I'm an American writing about people in Britain and uh, Kimru, you know, and I, there are certain, I don't know, a certain way that I phrase things that are just part of my style. But it's a funny line to walk. I have had, I have actually gotten that comment before um, a few times that my books are easy to read which I'm glad. I hope that the voice kind of disappears, you know, so that folks can enjoy the story. You know, I've read books before where the, the narrator's voice is a little too much, and I didn't finish them because <laughs> it got too intrusive. You know, and like you said, sometimes language can be cumbersome. It's, you know, it's nice to create a turn of phrase, but it's a whole lot better to just get your idea across <laughs> um, without making people do a bunch of heavy lifting. Um, well, that's how I feel. I feel like if I am interested, and I think that that's a, a the clear, clear and concise is, is good writing. It, you know, in my, in my opinion, that's what I would like to read when I'm reading a book for something other than just the language itself, which unless it's a book of poetry, you know, I'm really right. there for more than just the words that are there. But I, well, I mean, I think you're, I think your writing is lovely and I'm sure a lot of work goes into making it seem as um, read with the ease that it does. I, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of very vivid imagery without it ever feeling like weighed down with description. I just, I felt this way reading the other series as well. Like I just felt so firmly planted in this place that I had never even been, you know, I had not even personally tried to imagine before, but felt oh, really, really. <laughs> um, 
And I know we're not talking about the series that I thought we were going to talk about when we first this, <laughs> but what I what I really loved about this, like right after the fall of Rome, um, what that your, your imagining of that experience for the people living in that area, it was almost like I told all of this too before, um, almost like this almost post-apocalyptic feeling yep. because it truly, and that's how it would have been probably. Yep. Um, I really like a story like that. It And so I hadn't expected to find that necessarily based on the premise, but it was just a really fun discovery, this sort of danger of it. And then kind of rebuilding out of the ashes, some sort of what would probably have been a distinct society because they had kind of had to figure out where, what they were, who they were without Rome. So I loved that about it. I thought it really, um, I thought it was really unique and really cool to find that in a book set at that time. But it felt also like a very natural, um, a very natural reality for them to be living with, given what had just happened. So anyway, I, that yeah, series, I, dream. well, People I'm, read it as well. I'm, so. <laughs> I'm glad that came through because post-apoc is exactly how I approached that series. Um, you know, Rome for you know, good or bad, gave a big part of the world, you know, a certain structure of laws for a long time. And even though it was decaying toward the end, you know, they were still in place uh, for a long time and the commerce routes were in place. And uh, I just can't even imagine what it was like uh, because apparently when, when Rome fell, the armies were just disbanded. Um, is what I read when I was researching it. And it literally happened in a matter of a couple of months. And so I just thought, oh my gosh, like what would happen to all the garrisons, you know, all the outposts on the frontier, which is, oh, I couldn't even imagine. Um, and it may not have been as chaotic as I wrote it, but you know, there's a little more drama <laughs> in the chaos. So that's the route I took. Yeah, I mean, I think anarchy does tend to be kind of um, kind of dramatic. I mean, I, I didn't feel it didn't feel overdone to me, but anyway, I shouldn't, I won't go on and gush more. <laughs> it's really, I I found it really fun. I we were going to ask you about um, research, and this is kind of funny because you've um, you've kind of told, revealed that a lot of your um, the situations in the culture are the result of filling in some blanks in your research. So you had more room to do that because it's not a particularly well-documented time, I suppose, in history. But um, yeah, I I think that the, you still have to kind of capture that, a, a, a convincing feeling, which um, had to have taken research of some kind, I'm assuming, but it sounds like you enjoy research and maybe this is a time period that you were kind of already interested in when you started writing um, Into the Fire. Is that, I mean, I don't know why else you would have said it then if you hadn't. Found it right, right. Yeah, no, I, um, I love the period. Uh, and part of it is the mystery that, you know, there was, there are just so few resources remaining. You know, there may have been more recorded at the time, but we don't have them anymore. And um, and much of what we know or think we know was written, you know, a couple of hundred years later. So um, I really just had to take what I knew about Roman Empire and the late Empire and extrapolate, um, you know, what would have what what might have remained, you know, right after Rome fell, and then, you know, up to a hundred years after Rome fell, um, because some things, you know. Rome brought some pretty good conveniences <laughs> to their frontier. And so there were some good things that I'm sure local folks would have wanted to retain. You know, there were also local power struggles. And um, so as long as I felt like as long as I had a handle on what materials were available and uh, in each area and what food was available, because, of course, a lot of our food, a lot of the food in Europe today came from South America, <laughs> you know, and that's yeah. that's one of those anachronisms you don't want to stumble on. I did it, you know, I've done, I continue actually all the time doing food research. So I don't know, I, I really love getting the characters kind of daily existence. Um, that was something I loved as a kid was reading historical stories, but about daily life. And, um, you know, how did they make their 
their breakfast, <laughs> you know, things like that. How did they wash their clothes? How often did they wash their clothes? You know, how did they catch their food? So I felt like if I could get into the nitty gritty like that, it would just feel more real. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a success. The strategy. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and it like I feel as though um, we've touched on this, but maybe haven't like gotten a direct answer to the next question that we plan to ask, which was why you why you began the story where you did because it it feels like this book is a lot. I I mean, it's very much about Bedwer and his adjustment to his sort of change in um, relationship to his father as a result of his injury. And then of course, just adjusting to being able to protect himself and kind of recapture the skills as a fighter that he had with his right hand now with his left. So in, of course, there's a character arc there for Arthur, but it feels like the, the, the arc that's primary in this book is Bedwar. And since it's an Arthurian tale, I guess <laughs> it's just interesting to me that, you know, that you kind of walked back a step to, make to start it where you did if you will so you touched on kind of your decision to start it at a point where you felt like the myth doesn't necessarily explore in as much nuance and obviously Bedwar's character is important because it's a romance but yeah I don't know if you if any of that makes sense but kind of what made you choose to center Bedwar a little bit in this first book well <laughs> um, the first thing I should say is that if anybody is familiar with Arthurian legend or if they later go read Arthurian legend they'll <laughs> they'll discover that I have changed a lot of family lineages and I did that in order to tighten up the story and make it a little more insular to the mountains where they live and one of those changes that I made was that I made Bedwar Uther's son uh, he's this is he's not usually Uther's son. Usually Arthur is Uther's son, and so uh, and Uther is not usually Gwen's father. So I did that just to make things a little more cohesive, um, so that all of those people could be living, you know, in close proximity. But so then, what I needed to do was explain why the warlord's son would not be following him in leadership, because you know a big part of the legend is that Uther is a king and he's powerful and then he gets ill and he eventually dies and Arthur becomes king after him. My series hasn't talked a lot about kings yet, but Uther is a powerful warlord and I needed to explain why the leadership was not going to go to Bedwar, but was going to eventually, eventually go to Arthur. And so I needed to really get a start on Bedwar's story and what would cause the big, you know, interruption in that line of succession. And it, you know, it, so it starts with his injury. And while he is able to, you know, train and come back and continue to fight, he's still not necessarily seen for better or worse. He's not seen by his people as, you know, being as powerful as his father. So really, that was, I guess that was probably why I focused on his story in that book. Yeah, that does make sense that you had to that you had to set up that reversal and also um it seems as though without getting into any further spoilers for future installments <laughs> that 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 might also impact Uther's receptiveness to future revelations, but I don't know, I guess <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a little I was thinking about what I would be able to talk about without spoiling anything and um it's I can say that Uther is not as awful as he comes off as <laughs> um but he is walking a line between holding control and keeping his people safe so he does and says some things that come off as terrible but behind the scenes, he's actually doing a whole lot more behind the scenes um, that will be uh, expanded on in the book I'm writing now. So it's exciting to be able to go back and explain <laughs> some of what he does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Finished the first book, I just I hated him so much. Like, he was awful. 
And then I, I just finished the second <laughs> book about a week ago, and you kind of get a bit more kind of what he'd done and kind of why he does the thing that he does. And I still not the biggest fan. <laughs> still quite an asshole, but <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of understand why he does what he does. Yeah, he's he's ruthless and he's hard, and um, he's done some very questionable things in order to help his son survive and help his people survive. And, you know, he's definitely a flawed, flawed individual. <laughs> um, but that just gives him that much more space to be redeemed. <laughs> yeah, and I certainly brutality adds to the realism. Like, I just, you know, it was a tough time, tough life. And, um, and I, I, I think you there's room for sensitivity um, and people within the sort of group who filled that role, but then at that sort of fear, fear some leader kind of serves a purpose in a lot of cultures for probably. So I'm less, I'm less judgmental. I'm ready. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So you mentioned that you kind of had to, change a lot of the lineage around and kind of one of the side characters who you introduce are Arthur's parents and I have to say like they were one of my yeah. favorite side characters you know the the gentle healer um and the very terrifying smithy and I think yeah one of my favorite parts <laughs> was that Bedwyr from the start of the book he actually has a very long-held crush on Matthias um and I really love the scene where Bedwyr kisses Arthur's father and like the kindness that he then shows him after that it's like a very sweet scene so I just want to know kind of I mean why you included them and also how you came up with these like very distinct characters so they were actually they came about in the prequel series the two men who were the heroes of Into the Fire adopt adopted Matthias when he was about two and a half and raised him and Britta and her parents lived in the same stronghold community as Mark and Wolf. And Britta took an early shine to the blacksmith workshop that Wolf ran. And she became his apprentice when she was about 13. And so their son and her, uh, she had courtship in that series. And that's when they got married. They, they had Kay and toward the end of that series, they have Arthur. And so I actually got to explore them quite a bit um, in that series and figure out who their characters were so that I could, you know, so that I knew (laughs) who was going to be raising Arthur. But they are both in Uther's book. So in Legend, Uther tricks a woman named Igraine into thinking that he is her husband, he goes to her in disguise. It's a mystical, um, it's like a spell, you know, that he gets from Merlin. He goes to Egraine disguised as her husband, and he sleeps with her. And while he's sleeping with her, his men are killing her husband. And the product of that night of passion is Arthur. What I kept from the legend was that Uther has certain feels for... (laughs) the woman who eventually becomes Arthur's mother. And so that is the main focus of Uther's book is the 30-year relationship, 35-year relationship that he has with Britta. They start first, they're bunging heads and they're clashing and they're pretty much, you know, unspoken enemies. And over the course of decades, they become friends and they become deep friends. And then... um, Toward the end of that book, a certain few things happen, and it really becomes a true romance by the end of that book, and that'll be book seven. But so that's, I didn't bring them into the story in order to, you know, complete Uther's book, but I thought that they could really help me round out Arthur. He, I liked the subversion of having his father be the empathetic one of the pair. And his mother is, she very much more um, subverts her emotions and channels all of her energy into practical work. And I liked seeing how that 
could create this young man who is, he cares about other people, but he's also just incredibly driven to be a warrior and to serve his warlord. So one other um, aspect about Uther and then Arthur's parents, who you were just sort of describing some of the setup for later um, later characters' stories is that that also leads Arthur to have this totally different upbringing and totally different, I don't know about totally different because he's still secretive, but like a an easier time maybe acknowledging and accepting his sexuality than Bedwar has had because for Bedwar, he's like more closed off. It took him longer to realize that he was attracted to men and he has maybe more hangups about it than Arthur does. So I was wondering if that was deliberate or just kind of a side effect of who the parent characters were. Since, as you said, they kind of um, they kind of arrived in the story from the prequel series and sort of are who they are. But but was that at all deliberate to give them such different upbringings in terms of the way that their parents parent? Yeah, absolutely. It adds some nice conflict. Of course, it gives Bedwer pretty good inner conflict to think that. He can never let his father know where his real desires lay. And Arthur, on the other hand, has these two grandfathers who are, you know, for 30 years. And uh, there's another couple in the village of two men who are kind of unspoken, you know, partners. So he knows that it's possible. He also knows that he can't say it out loud because most of the people in their village actually are not you know there are there's a vocal few who are not down with it when you pair that need for keeping quiet with a young man who does not have a lot of impulse control (laughs) you know you kind of set up a ticking time bomb (laughs) to where you know he's going to make a mistake and he's going to you know end up outing himself he may end up outing somebody else and so it can it can make the reader a little nervous you know when you pair a character with a a situation like that and it allowed me to put Arthur and Bedwer in different situations where they challenged each other you know Arthur can be pushing Bedwer to um, explore his desires and insisting, you know, we're safe because we're in this isolated place. But then it also puts Bedwer back into a protective mode where he's trying to make Arthur remember that they can't, you know, they have to be careful. They can't just parade around the village because they might be, you know, run off. So it it just basically gives some nice back and forth um, and internal conflict. Yeah, I don't think it was very interesting that, like, in this village, there are, I think, in the, I mean, by the second book, there are about three other queer couples, and yet it's still a village that, you know, they kind of accept those few because they don't, like, I mean, Arthur almost implies that they don't really think about it, kind of what they do because of how old they are and they're already established, and yet they have to still be quite secretive about it, even with these kind of known gay couples in the village. Right, like uh, there's there's an older couple named um, Tiro, who is a scout, and Philip, who becomes the Merlin figure in the story, and they arrive in the village with Arthur's parents, and they are already a couple, but you know, I, as far as the people in the village are concerned, these are just two guys who <laughs> cohabit, <laughs> you know, and. Arthur's grandfathers are a little more forward about it because they they don't care who knows. You know, they've, <laughs> at that point, they're in their 60s and they're like, you know, this is who we are. So they live, you know, they live their lives. But um, it's it's a different matter. As far as the people are concerned, it's a different matter, you know, when it's Uther's son. And so that's a major conflict, is that the warlord's son would desire other men. And so while Uther is working behind the scenes to try to give Bedwer a happy future, he has to walk this line with, you know, the people under his power. It makes him look homophobic 
for sure. So that's, and I don't, you know, I don't think he was a super enlightened individual, you know, <laughs> from the get go. <laughs> um, <laughs> definitely not. But he, he's one of the first people to recognize the worth and the humanity of the folks who arrived, who were, you know, same gender partners. So he, he works as much to keep them in the village and keep them safe and, you know, have their skills available to his people while, you know, also kind of placating his people by not seeming to allow, you know, things that they find, you know, strange or unusual. But yeah, it's, it's a, it was a funny line to walk and I'm, I'm having fun exploring it, <laughs> exploring uh, Uther's thought process in his book. But, um, you know, as far as Arthur and Bedwer are concerned, they think they have to keep everything a secret. Okay, so now on to my favorite part of every single interview. So what have you been reading lately that <laughs> you would recommend to us? So I'm a bookseller, so I, of course, have to love that question. <laughs> nice. So I have a list. <laughs> um, so I have a few books to recommend. Some I've read lately and some are in some way um, related to the topic. But the first one is called Agnes Moore's Wild Night, and it's by Alyssa Cole. And it's another medieval story uh, that takes place in Scotland. And Agnes Moore is a black woman in uh, the court of uh, some nobleman. And it's a, an MF romance um, that takes place between her and one of the knights of that kingdom. It's an awesome novella. It's an awesome story. Highly recommend. There is a historical kind of alternate history slash fantasy series by A.J. Demas. Um, and the first book is called Sword Dance. And it is currently, as we speak, free on Amazon. I don't know if it's available widely. It might be. I didn't check. But... Um, it is currently free, so I've heard great... I haven't actually read that one, by the way, but I've heard really, really good things about it. Um, she kind of reimagines like an alternate Rome, alternate Greece-like society in those. The third book I wanted to recommend is one that I read this spring, and it's called... It's a historical romance, and it's called A Land So Wild by Alyssa Workington. And this, it's not uh, direct, you know, ripped from the pages history, but there were, at the time in history when the British were exploring the Arctic seas for a Northwest Passage, several ships went missing because it's, you know, it was very perilous. So that's what her book is about. It's about not so much about the ship that got lost, but about the these uh, ships that were sent afterward to figure out what happened. And um, it includes um, a gay romance between two of the characters. And her descriptions of that sea voyage are just amazing. And then they're also interspersed with oral stories that are being told by the First Nations people of the High Arctic um, in what's now Canada. Uh, so I love that book. It's called The Land So Wild. A duology that I read uh, recently takes place during the U.S. Civil War. And uh, the first book is called Purgatory. The second book is called Salvation. And they are by an author named Jeff Mann, M-A-N-N. And this is the very hopeful ending romance <laughs> between a Union soldier and a Confederate soldier. And um, going into that one, readers should know that uh, it's a wartime setting, so content warnings for all wartime stuff. And in the first book, the Union soldier is a prisoner 
of the Confederate soldier's uh, crazy uncle. And so the Confederate soldier is actually sneaking in, you know, and helping the Union soldiers survive during that whole book. Um, he's keeping him alive. He's keeping his, his spirits up until they can escape. Um, but readers should know that there's a fair amount of brutality in that book. But it is, that duology is just really good. And the, the voices are amazing. And the ending is so much more hopeful than I thought it would be. Like it's a, it's actually a romance. They get a happy ever after. And then if readers are interested in something a little more contemporary, Talia Hibbert has an MM romance called Work For It that pairs a big, this is one of my favorite things, when you pair a character who's kind of big and shy and gruff and quiet uh, with a character who's smaller in some way, but more gregarious and, uh, you know, gregarious character is basically poking the bear. <laughs> but it's about a fellow who goes to, it's kind of like an agricultural vacation. I can't remember what they're picking, but he, I think it's berries, maybe elderberries. I should know this. I should remember this. Sorry, Talia. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> this city boy basically goes out to the country for a agricultural vacation to try to get out of his head. And he meets the man who runs the orchard and they have uh, a romance and it's just uh, it's just beautiful I love it it's called work for it and then if folks are interested in more um, Arthurian tie-ins called winter nights nights with a K and um, I'm not gonna say too much about it because it would spoil the whole darn thing but it's awesome. It's a fairly quick read, and it's super sexy. Um, includes a threesome, in case anybody's into that. And um, it's kind of a romance and kind of more on the erotic side. Because the main character doesn't, doesn't actually end up with the other two. But it's totally worth reading, and it's definitely an Arthurian tie-in. Um, and then, like I said, I love Jack White's Camulid Chronicles that start with the Sky Stone. That war series sounds so fascinating. Which one? The Civil War one. The uh... oh, it's so good. Like you know, <laughs> you know how people make fun of or they like do um, memes of the letters home. You know, like the letters uh, that were yeah. read during during Ken Burns Civil War series. These guys. It's, um, God, their voices are just so authentic to the style of those actual letters uh, that were sent home. The author has really, really done his reading with uh, contemporary sources. It's amazing. It's, parts of it are really hard to read because one of the characters is tortured in several ways. But then the second book, after they've escaped, is like this wild um chase and pursuit through the countryside uh, trying to get to one fella's home where they can be safe and it's oh it's just so good so good that's another book where there's a size difference i think i really like heroes of different sizes <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a great list thank you for sharing all of those sure sure <laughs> Everyone needs more books on to read list. So, oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> topple. Let's topple our TBRs. <laughs> I mean, I did Sword Dance. Is yeah, it's free, so I clicked the link and I have already bought it. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mia, thank you so much for being with us. This has been really fun. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you to everybody who with us. If you're listening the recording in a timely fashion server and able to answer questions in our Q&A channel for the for the rest of the month right or at least a few more days so oh absolutely absolutely yeah. I'll hop over to the discussion thread now and see if there's anything I can answer and I'll I'll check in so yeah 
Love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think that that covers it. This is not outro. Ella, you did a script. You're going to have to insert one. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Yeah, so thank you for it's been great talking to you. And again, thank you to anyone listening to us. Also, check out all our social medias. Um, just follow us everywhere, please. <laughs> gonna gonna do that. Like, <laughs> gonna do all the plugs. Um, but yeah. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>